The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah 1-3 Hi, this is Pastor Jason from Christian Life Church in Waverly, New York. Welcome to Master's Crib, a weekly podcast where we interview pastors and leaders about the biblical teaching of authority. This program is designed to go alongside a personal Bible study aimed towards spiritual growth, biblical understanding, and a Christian worldview. Thanks for tuning in. So today on episode 26, we have Nathan Rittenhouse of RZIM. Nathan Rittenhouse is an itinerant speaker with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. He was graduated from Bridgewater College in Virginia with a double major in physics and philosophy and religion and a minor in mathematics before attending the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. He holds an MDiv from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and we are so excited to have you here tonight. Welcome to Master's Crib, Nathan. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to to spending some time with you guys. We appreciate that. So just for a couple minutes, let's uh, talk about you and kind of how you got going in this. So how long have you been with RZIM now? You know, I'm just just starting my eighth year and uh, got started with RZIM. Actually, my first uh, placement with them was in Boston, so up in the New England area. And that was a wonderful place to to get started and, and get my feet under myself. Awesome. So what led you to want to do what you're doing now? Well, you know, that's a, I, I think the honest answer is the Lord has a sense of humor. <laughs> um, and uh, that's probably a good answer to a lot of things. Yeah, it's one of those things I, I didn't even know what the field of apologetics really was. Um, I had a curious mind, grew up in a Christian family that really encouraged uh, difficult questions and, and good discussion. And you know, I didn't grow up with a ton of Christian friends, so I was always needing to articulate what it is that I believed and then took classes in, in college where that was very much the case as well and, and flourished in it and found that there were good answers to the questions that I had and just kind of loved that respectful dialogue in defense of uh, reasoning through what I believe. And then um, after I graduated with these kind of weird academic backgrounds, what do you do with that? Um, some people had had heard of RZIM's um, program, the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, and, and, and a number of different people who weren't connected to each other recommended it and said, hey, you know what, I think just the way that your mind works and um, what we know about you, this would be a good fit. And so long story short, went and did that, and that was sort of my introduction into the formal study of apologetics. Awesome. Awesome. So when you get done at the end of the day, you know, what has been the mission? What do you hope that you have accomplished you know, RZIM has a, has a wonderful little uh, phrase that the mission of our organization is helping the thinker believe and helping the believer think. Mm. So it's, it's a both and there sort of. We're wanting to uh, engage the non-believers with the credibility of the gospel, but on the other hand, also help Christians remember <laughs> the strength of what it is that they believe. Awesome. Part of the work that we do, um, just on a personal note, in this in between sort of like, you know, work in the churches and working in university campuses and that sort of thing, there's a, there's a back and forth there that allows us oftentimes just because of our travel experience to sort of stand in the gap, I think, between the church and the culture mm-hmm. and do a bit of translation work back and forth in between and say, when you say this, this is what it sounds like. And when they're doing this, it's because of this. Um, and so that's a, a fun part, too, where I would say we're almost helping the believer believe sometimes as well uh, in between those categories. So it's 
the desire is uh, intellectual uh, servanthood for the church. I believe that we want to well, worship the Lord with our minds, and it's wonderful that there's an organization that uh, hires people to spend time to wrestle with some of these ideas uh, yeah. in order for us to all be more faithful. Now, how does your uh, podcast uh, tie into RZIM? I know it's an extension of, right? It is. Yes, and so that's a great question. Really what's going on there is that I think one of the things that we take for granted as Christians is the depth to which Christianity makes sense of the world as we see it. And so the podcast that my uh, co-host Cameron McAllister and I do, really our desire there, the the, the subtitle is, it's a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. The point of that is, is to show Christians, you have the tools in your toolbox to make sense of and grapple with the problems that you see in the world. Mm -hmm. You don't... uh, need to go down all the rabbit holes of YouTube, uh, if you understand the gospel, what you see in the world actually shouldn't surprise you. You can be saddened by it, but you shouldn't be surprised by it Mm -hmm. because the Bible gives us a view of looking at reality in a way that all of these things actually make a sad sense sometimes, sometimes a beautiful sense. Mm -hmm. So really the the desire there is on the helping the believer uh, think part about how it is that we might take what we believe and know to be true and apply it to conversations happening around us at the lunch table, uh, around the water cooler, wherever uh, our jobs and lives take us, that would be meaningful to help other people see the beauty of the gospel. Wow, that is wonderful. Well, uh, let's take a couple minutes, you and I, and tear into God's Word. Uh, We're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 18, a very familiar passage for most people. And uh, I'm going to start at verse 20. It says this, So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull, and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved until the time of the offering of oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. 
And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at that time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know you, O Lord, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So, what is taking place on this mountain? Well, there's certainly a lot going on, and, and I love this story because of that. I think the fundamental thing that's happening here is, is, a, is a recalibration through a sense of, of reminding. And so you see that Elijah is very careful. He, he's working within their history. He's taking the 12 stones, remin, reminding them of the 12 tribes, and remembering of the God's promise of their identity, um, so he's working within that framework, and it's just, I mean, desperate times require desperate measures, I guess, if you look at the, the way in which God usually works in history, you're, you know, he's, he's up against King Ahab here, who has the superlative of, you know, nobody does more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, and to anger him, <laughs> you know, than all the kings before the time, like, that, how would you like to have that superlative, mm, uh, you're the guy sure. who angered God the most, um, and so there's, there's such a warping of, of Israel's view of who they are that uh, a powerful thing has to happen here to refocus them. And so I think that's, that's really, it's a, it's a drastic thing, but a drastic change is required. And so obviously God's able to do that. So being an identity issue, do you see this as a battle of worldviews? I, I do. Um, I think it's important, and, and we'll talk more about worldviews later, but we have to remember that not all worldviews are the same size. Mm. And Elijah here is dealing with a cosmic view of, of God and what he can do in the world. And I think the, the prophets of, of Baal and the people have fallen into a, a view of the world that is too small. Mm. So there's a conflict here for sure. But part of the conflict is it's not that you have two uh, equally equipped worldviews battling it out. You have a, a tiny, insignificant, inferior one Mm. almost being overshadowed by this, I wouldn't even say it's a worldview, it's a cosmic view of reality. Um, so there, there is a tension there, uh, but it's not much of a battle <laughs> just because it's totally <laughs> outsized um, in authority and reality. Yeah. So, so the, the short answer is yes. The long answer is it's a battle, but not much of one. Yeah, I got you, I got you. So, so what is important about the way that Elijah treats his sacrifice in contrast to the way that the prophets of Baal do? Well, the, there's, there's a, a number of things that are different there. One of those is he undercuts anything that could make it even look like he cheated. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the pouring the water on the altar, um, you know, it wasn't an accident that this thing caught on fire. And so actually he's, he's undermining, he's, he's operating within a framework of a correspondence theory of truth here. And, and he sets that up from the beginning. I don't, you know, he, that, that's why he ties into him, right? Why are you wavering in between? If, if God is God, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Bell is God, like, don't be stuck in between. Use your senses. And I mean, they're, they're at the end of a three-year uh, drought here. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, Bell hasn't really come through for him any time in the last three years. And, uh, 
you could you could almost sense Elijah's frustration maybe in the tone in which he's mocking. Mm. Um, but the big thing, the difference is, is that Elijah is following what God commanded him to do. The word you've given me there in verse 36. So Elijah follows the God. What the prophets of Baal are doing is trying to get the, God, the gods or get Baal to follow them. Mm. And so there's a, there's a total reversal here when we're in the presence of the true God. The mm. true God does not jump through our hoops. Wow. So We're obedient to what he says. And so this whole thing is framed. Elijah says that. I'm not doing anything that you haven't commanded me to do. That is amazing. And, and that's a total game changer. But you see the distinction there. It's, it's 180 degrees different. Mm. So is there any importance uh, to the witnesses that are here? I mean, who's called to witness this? Yeah, well, so as far as who's not there, uh, Baal mm. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't show up. Um, but also Jezebel, mm. who is sort of the, the, the financial backing of this, this whole enterprise. Um, but you would think she would, she would have an, an interest in that. So those are the notable characters who are missing. Mm. Um, but who is there? Well, call people from all parts of Israel. This isn't, you know, God doesn't often do things quietly in a corner. Mm. Um, and so he's saying, get as many people here to, to, to witness this as possible. Wow. So it's, I mean, Ahab is there. But actually, I mean, when you go back and look through this, there's not actually a question of authority between Elijah and Ahab. Mm. Elijah, as a representative of God, always has the upper hand in these interactions. Um, and in fact, they're all on the mountain because Elijah told Ahab to be there. Mm. So you don't really see Ahab as a threat to the authority of God. Um, but that's not who it needs to be proven to. It needs to be proven to the people. And so the people are there as a witness. Mm. That's awesome. So um, in the end, we see the people make this declaration. Why is this? Well, the, the, the heart of what God is getting to here is the heart of the people, I think. Um, and so they have to make that declaration. It, it's interesting, um, whereas that back in the earlier part, you know, Elijah gives them this alternative. Hey, if Baal is, you know, if, God, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is, and the people are silent, they don't say anything. Mm. And so you have this wishy-washiness of not being able to discern reality. Mm. And so in the end, the people making a declaration is, okay, we have seen, we're, we remember, <laughs> uh, clearly this is a, a mighty a display of God's power. So it, it kind of slaps them back into reality, as it were, um, that they make this declaration of, okay, from, you know, verse 21, they're wishy-washy. Verse 39, they fall on their faces and cry out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. A repeated kind of chant there. And so um, God's means are very effective <laughs> in restoring them to this reminder. Um, so... So that's, that's, the, that's the transition. The people don't know what's going on. God acts, and the people have clarity. Wow, that is so awesome. So uh, bringing that up into some cultural implications, what does a proper view of authority even have to do with apologetics? Well, that's a wonderful question, and the reason for that is, is that it, it ties in exactly with, um, I think when people start talking about apologetics, we immediately say, okay, well, where is that concept justified in Scripture? And if you look in First Peter Three and verses 14 and 15 along in there, the, the mandate to do apologetics, to give a reason for the hope that you have, actually the, the sentence starts off saying, um, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord mm. and always be prepared to give a reason. Um, 
answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. So the first line is, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. So right there, the Peter's view of this is that authority, the apologetics is only possible under the structure of declaring Christ as Lord first. Mm. Now, the practical part of this is, as we, we look at that first Peter part, but actually he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, um, and in Isaiah, and this is a fascinating Christology thing here, they take out the name Yahweh and stick Christ in in the New Testament, but in Isaiah 8, uh, you know, the Assyrians are wiping out is everything, basically, and they're in the next zip code, everybody in Israel is panicking, and I like to envision God grabbing Isaiah by the lapels, and he's saying, <laughs> look, focus right here. Um, he says, in your heart, set apart, do not fear what they fear, and don't be afraid, in your heart, set apart, sanctify, set apart Yahweh as Lord. And if you take the Greek Old Testament and then parallel that into the uh, Greek New Testament, the same phrase is used. It's not that Peter wasn't able to think of an original way to say, don't be afraid, but he's taking that incident to saying, look, there's chaos going around, around in the world all over the place, and it's easy to get distracted by horrible things that we see all over the place, but I want you, Isaiah, to focus right here. Mm. And Peter is saying that same God speaks to his church and says, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. And so when we set apart Christ as Lord, that reframe, reframes, recalibrates, as happened here in 1 Kings 18. Who's calling the shots? Mm. And then what's our responsibility in relation to that? So if we're giving a reason for the hope that we have, but it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus, then it's not Christian apologetics. <laughs> it's just apologetics. Wow. So the authority has to be there, or else really we're just working out of, human clever ideas and that doesn't always get us that far mm. now it, it seems as though in our modern culture i mean authority does seem to be an issue do you uh, think that our culture is friendly toward the idea of authority <laughs> um okay so um no <laughs> the so so here's where this this is where it gets interesting specifically as you start to tie this into spiritual ideas is that our culture does like the idea of connecting with something bigger than ourselves. And that's where you get this whole like spiritual but not religious sort of thing going on. So we like, um, you know, nature can do that for us. Art can do that for us. It gives us a, a shoot, sports can do that for us. It gives us a, a sense of um, being a participant in something bigger than ourselves. And as humans, obviously, we would, as Christians, believe that that makes sense. Um, so there's this, this love of the idea of being part of something bigger than ourselves, but as in our modern time, we intentionally keep that something bigger ambiguous because we're willing to be part of it as long as it doesn't demand anything from us in return. Mm. Wow. And that's where authority, I mean, the problem we have with authority is, is it challenges our autonomy. Mm. So I like the idea of, of there being a big story and a bigger picture that I'm a part of as long as that bigger thing doesn't tell me what to do. Wow. Because we actually hold autonomy as the higher, highest virtue, not authority. So do our apologetic arguments address that particular issue, do you think? you think we're doing a good job with that? Well, th this, is, this is the million-dollar question right here, and I think the, part of the reason that it's so important is, is that the questions that our culture is asking fluctuate, fluctuate wildly depending on what's happening in the culture around us. So it's actually rather difficult to say, and there have been times in the past when I've said, you know, we've published lists of these are the 30 most important questions. Um, I sometimes jokingly say, you know, the big questions right now are all S's, sex, science, suffering, suicide, significance. Mm. Um, that 
if you get these these categ there are categories of longing here of of belonging but wanting to belong to something that doesn't have a definition mm -hmm. and so that you, you can't that doesn't exist um so in that sense our apologetic arguments need to be listening i think off let me give you a practical example sometimes a church will say hey can you come speak to our youth on such and such a topic and i'll say sure and i get there and you know what i find out the youth leader had that question but none of the kids there really care oh. <laughs> <laughs> because the questions of culture change so quickly so i think the best thing we can do as a church there is have our ears open and do a, a good deal of listening on the on the front end of that um because the yeah, the, the mood and the, and the questions, there's so much flexibility to, to that. Um, but keeping in the back of our minds, the reason that that authority part is real is that the, the gospel can make sense and people can know that it's true and still walk away from it. Mm. Not because it isn't true, but just because it does have an authority structure. Mm. Having enough evidence does not always convince everybody. I mean, was Jezebel convinced by what happened here in First Kings 18? Right, no. I mean, how much more evidence could you... It's, you see this, you know, at the resurrect, after the resurrection, and they saw him, and they worshipped him, and some doubted. Mm. <laughs> he's, he's standing right there. Um, and so the part where this plays back into, I think, our cultural apologetics is people would say, well, if there was more evidence, we would... And you just got to stop right there and be like, uh, no, mm. probably not. Um, scripture is packed full of times in which God gave an overwhelming display of evidence, and that isn't actually what people needed. And so I think we can challenge and push back a little bit when people say, well, I don't believe because there's enough evidence. Actually, maybe there is enough evidence, but it's difficult to submit ourselves to, in your heart set apart, Christ as Lord. Um, wow. You know, Nathan, I'm so glad that you said that uh, because a lot of people that I speak with, the reason that they're fearful of apologetics is because it's a big word and we leave that up to the apologists. And they're worried that they won't have the right words to say. They're worried that they won't be able to have a convincing argument. And like you said, that's so important to remember. And sometimes it doesn't matter how much evidence you have. Yeah, the, the more arguments you know, the more you recognize and are reminded that conversion is a spiritual experience and mm -hmm. that God does it. Mm -hmm. Um. <laughs> yeah, don't fool your, don't fool your, I mean, so think of it this way. If somebody holds a totally incoherent and illogical worldview currently, what makes you think that your logic and reason is going to be the thing that changes their mind? <laughs> right, right. Um, no, I'm not, I'm not at all saying that's not important and not useful, or I'd be out of a job, but I'm just saying it's, you're, you're not on your own here when you're having these conversations. Um, and it's totally fine to say, I don't know to some questions and continue the conversation and say, let me get back to you on that. Um, uh, but people can't expect you to be the master of knowledgeology in every subset and category. So don't let not knowing something hold you back from beginning to learn how to do that well. Wow. So how important is it to have a strong Christian worldview? And uh, what part does the authority of Christ play in that? Hmm. Well, there are a number of things to be said here. And I think as it relates to the passage that we just looked at, it's interesting to me that Elijah has a, does have a proper view of God, but he doesn't have actually a full view of the world. Mm. And the reason I say that is he has this wonderful, let's call it showdown like you have, um, with the prophets of Baal, the, the authority script flips. I love how he tells Ahab when to eat and when to get on his horse and when to leave. Um, that all is just hilarious. If you don't <laughs> think scripture is funny, look at that. It's just hilarious. And then he outruns the horse, just a little extra icing on the cake there. Um, <laughs> 
Next scene, Isaiah wants to die. Woe is me. Um, I'm all by myself. And then God sends him through the desert for 40 days. Uh, you know, it's when we're going through the desert periods of life that our solid worldview is important. And it is important that our faith makes sense to us because it doesn't always feel true due to the things that are going on in the world around us. It doesn't mean that it isn't. Um, and I think most people who have been walking with Christ for a while will, will recognize this, but we need to see that it's true even in the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, that after having just seen God work powerfully, Elijah is undone and is crying under a, a, a bush. Um, so the reality is is that the, the structure of a worldview does stabilize us greatly um, it gives us it gives us um, light post in the past and in the future to guide ourselves when, when things don't seem immediately true. That being said, the difficulty that we'll run into, and when I say worldview here, I'm, I'm taking largely kind of the categories. Ravi used these, uh, Francis Schaeffer to a different extent, another apologist, that Ravi would say, look, the, category, the questions of life fall into the broad categories of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Where did we come from? Why are we here? How do we behave? Where are we headed? Those are the big questions of life. And as a Christian, I think one of the beautiful things that stabilizes the Christian worldview is that I'm looking for a way of seeing the world that answers all of those questions deeply. And, and this is, a, this is an important one, I want, them to, I want a worldview that answers all of those questions deeply and doesn't contradict itself in the other categories. Mm. So there are ways of seeing the world that have an origin story. Let's take a deeply naturalistic origin view of the world. The problem is, is that doesn't neatly then fit into a morality category of how we should live in the world. Mm. You see what I'm saying there? Yeah, yeah. So it's not enough to have one or two or even three of those worked out well. You have to have all four of those in a way that don't contradict, contradict each other in the other categories. Mm. And that's where the, the, the beauty of the simplicity of Christianity really shines. Mm. Now, that being said, and it's important that we have our minds wrapped around that as Christians, it really stabilizes us in our faith. That being said, we're living in a time in which the concept of worldview is part of the Christian worldview, in the sense that lots of people are totally content living without a worldview. Now, that could blow our minds, <laughs> but it's unique to Christianity right now in our moment that we would even demand consistency in the way that we see the world. And so, I mean, once you start having some of these conversations, you just, you want to put your hands on your head and think, what in the world is going on here? Mm -hmm. But consistency is no longer a virtue on the, on the surface level. And so we have to recognize that it's important for us to have a Christian worldview, while at the same time, you're not going to be able to pin somebody down and say, well, here's how you believe the world existed, uh, but that doesn't answer what you think about meaning. And lots of people will be like, hmm, that's interesting. I'll go get some more coffee. Um, <laughs> that's the time that we're living in. So it's important for us because we do need to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have and, and have a structured, logical way of looking at it. But we also have to recognize that that language and way of thinking doesn't always work neatly as the first step in a conversation with somebody. Uh, people will demand that your faith is rational, but not expect to have to give a reason for why the way that they aren't faithful isn't rational. Mm. So... Anyway, just a little heads up there, um, and it's fun to think about, is that true? Is, is the language of worldview now a Christian worldview category? Mm. Well, that's, re that's really, really good. So how can a Christian develop a stronger biblical worldview? 
Well, I think for me, um, I, I, yeah, I was going to say personally, but it's not personally. This is, this is biblical. For me, the most grounding and worldview-developing um, thing that you can possibly be part of is Christian community. Mm. The local church is, is God's A plan for the evangelization of the world, and a confident Christian in the context of their own community, um, that's, that's really what God works with. That being said, of course, obviously right now in the middle of a pandemic, it's a little difficult to do. But what, what, what's happening when you're in Christian community is that you're looking at, this is what my faith looks like um, at all of these different ages of life. And this is what my faith would look like in all of these different occupations. And you know what? Sometimes really sad things are happening in our Christian community. And, my, and what Jesus teaches makes sense of that. And sometimes at the same time, really joyful things are happening. And what Jesus teaches makes sense of that. And so it's not enough for all of this to make sense in our head if we don't see how it's actually lived out. And so I can go someplace and speak about the, the beauty and the coherence and correspondence and livability of the gospel, but unless I can point to a group of people who are actually living that out, mm. it's not plausible. And so I think the, the workaround here, based off of the previous question that you asked me, is people will often say, hey, can you come and speak on the rationality of the Christian faith? And you know what? It's, this is going to sound weird. As from the apologetics evangelistic side, but oftentimes I say no. What I would like to do is speak on what difference would it make if it was true. Mm. Because unless you think something is actually going to change your life, you're not going to invest the mental effort and energy into it to decide whether or not it is true. Mm. Wow. And so we, we almost have to paint the picture of this is the difference that it makes in our lives. And then people say, hmm, that looks really good. I wonder if it's true. Um, I think that type of thing happens for me in Christian community where I see the truth of what it is that I believe practiced and lived out in a way that is um, difficult but also contagious uh, because it's good. And so that, I, I think, if you really want to understand what Christ has intended for you in your faith, it's very, very difficult to do in isolation. Um, and that's why Jesus gathered his disciples around him and worked at it from that angle. So uh, a plug there for the local church. Wow, that's awesome. So uh, just, just one final thing, just a little homework for us all. What's the Desert Island book on apologetics that we all ought to read in 2020? <laughs> oh, narrow it down to one. Make it difficult. <laughs> um, you know, uh, one that I think is, um, that I find to be helpful and kind of a, a helpful introduction to understanding the culture that we live in and, and how to um, speak into that as Christians is a book called Disruptive Witness, it's by Alan Noble. The full title is Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. Mm. And I think it does a wonderful job of recognizing the digital culture that we live in, some of the um, subconscious ideas that are very prevalent that make Christianity seem implausible, um, but also a very hopeful book about how the, the normal routine patterns of living a faithful Christian life really actually do make more of a difference in our community and our friendships and relationships than we really think. And so that's one that I encourage people to, to read, Disruptive Witness by Alan Noble. It's not, it's not the same type of apologetics book. Um, and I'm not saying don't read ones that are topical of like proof for the resurrection, where is God and evil? You know, those are important questions to ask too. This one is a bit broader in the sense of here's the cultural milieu in which we're, we're living and speaking. And for me, it's helpful to, to have uh, some of those uh, points in the back of my mind. Wow, that's wonderful. So how can our listeners find out more about you and the ministry of RZIM? 
You know, it's a, it's a real uh, privilege and it's a lot of fun to work for RZIM, uh, as difficult as it can sometimes be with all the travel and the big ideas of the world. But RZIM.org is the website, stands for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, RZIM.org. There's tons of YouTube content, but a lot of wonderful um, podcast articles, videos, and many of those are topical, are related for different audiences and age groups for the specific uh, thing that I do that sounds a lot like this. If you look up RZIM and under the listen tab in the podcast, or just you can use your search engine, RZIM, uh, the podcast Thinking Out Loud is one that uh, Nathan Rittenhouse and Cameron McAllister uh, do together. And we have a lot of fun doing that. And as I said at the beginning, thinking about, okay, here's what's happening in the world. We do have hope because we've read to the end of the story. We worship this God who showed up on Mount Carmel. Um, and given that, and what's taught in scripture, can we make sense of the world around us? Actually, not just make sense of it, but invite people into the beauty of the truth of who this real God is. Wow. Well, that is wonderful. I really appreciate this conversation, and I'm going to be praying for you and for your family and for your ministry, RZIM. So, Nathan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you guys, and perhaps someday our paths will cross face to face. Yes. Lord bless you. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>